0: I've got...
1: Welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture, even if it sometimes feels like we're doing it because an evil fairy cursed us at our christening because our parents didn't invite them. But not this week!
0: No, this week the evil fairy sent us to an alternate dimension, (laughs) and I loved it there.
1: I'm Susan Raslin.
0: I'm David Dahl
1: and we finally found a good movie in 1935
0: uh, yep and it's in 1936
1: <laughs> <laughs> well it's called the Broadway Melody of 1936 yeah I know. but as you said last week it's uh Broadway melodies are on like the car ear schedule
0: yeah I I have a slightly different theory after watching this film which is so Susan, convince me this movie wasn't made by time travelers after they accidentally destroyed all the copies of the actual original Broadway melody of 1936.
1: I, I, I can't do that. Yeah. There's no possible way I could do that. There's too much in this movie that would refute that.
0: Yeah, I think the big one being that there's just such a fully formed high character. Just so, just-
1: Just so stoned. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Like, wearing Gilligan's outfit from Gilligan's Island with Mickey Mouse patched onto it.
1: Yeah, or like he walked straight out of that 70s show.
0: Yeah, just so stoned. The future Jed Clampett in his very first role is just a fully formed- Super Stone Shaggy from the frickin' 90s Scooby-Doo movie.
1: He's one of my favorite characters as well.
0: Oh, yeah, no. The thing about this movie is that no one is recognizably human. No actions or locations make any sense, and I loved it. I loved it so much.
1: <laughs> so should we talk about the plot, question <laughs> mark?
0: Can- can we? That's the thing, is that, like- the m- Now as never before, I don't know how to connect these events to one another in a way that doesn't make me sound like I have lost my mind.
1: Or you're really stoned. <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's talk about the inciting incident of this movie. Our two gossip columnists—wait, our gossip columnist who makes enough money to hire an assistant and his assistant— looking out the window and just seeing a fancy party filled with Broadway's elite and a rich widow, having binocular glasses they put on top of their glasses, witnessing a full musical number (laughs) with, like, stupid set tricks, and a, a Broadway producer being able to make flowers bloom on command, and then somehow they're able to have heard the quiet dialogue from before the musical number and react to only that of just like oh i see he and the rich the rich widow is financing his next production and it's like that is not the most notable thing you just saw my dude <laughs> that is not top 5 <laughs> that uh, and like, and that's honestly not even close to the craziest thing that happens in this film.
1: It's pretty intense. After that, the the gossip columnist played by Jack Benny, who I read his Wikipedia article, was not actually an asshole?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure who I'm thinking of. I would have to go way down far on Nicole Cliff's Twitter page to figure it out. But apologies to Jack Benny. I don't think that's who it was that was an asshole she was talking about. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he seemed to be like actually kind of a pretty cool guy. Anyway, yes. So the producer who is named Bob Gordon, who is YA novel handsome. (laughs) He's like the most beautiful looking human being I have ever seen, which makes it really irritating that he's also a shit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a thing when you first see him where you're like, oh, is Gary Cooper in this movie? No, he's better looking than Gary Cooper.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's- and how is that even possible? <laughs> he has, like, the most perfect teeth I've ever seen. And, like, every plane of his face is just absolutely immaculate. I feel like I'm reading a, a YA novel's description of, like, a fairy prince or something. His best friend, whose name is Irene Foster, played by Eleanor Rapel, moves to New York from Albany... Well, best friend, his like high school sweetheart, right? Like they were, they dated, sort of.
0: It's kind of unclear. There's a part where it's like, I thought they were definitely going for, oh, they fucked. But then his immediate reaction was, yeah, I totally forgot about that until five minutes ago, which I don't think even he's enough of an asshole for that to be true if they fucked. (laughs) Sucks. But maybe, because, Bo- because Bob is the worst. Bob is the he's worst. Just- <laughs> Bob is the worst is in my notes eight times, because he's just the worst. But also, Irene is our main character, but I do want to stress, you're 20 minutes into the movie before you meet Irene. Right. (laughs) You meet so many characters. She is introduced as such a, like, minor character in the first scene she appears in, but she is, in fact, our lead. And also, she's great. Yeah. It's just the structure of this movie is nuts.
1: Basically, she moves to New York from New York City, from Albany, which is their hometown, because... Just like Bob, when they were in high school, she had a dream of, like, moving to New York and being on Broadway. And, like, her dream was to be on stage and his was to be a producer. And he spends the entire movie not even allowing her to, like, audition or anything at all, but just telling her to go home to Albany because, really, she doesn't want this. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, it's not what you think. And at any point in this movie... Does being a Broadway producer for Bob Gordon look like it's anything other than totally fine?
0: No. The worst thing about this industry is that occasionally a rich widow will pay a lot of money to try and get a lead role and then not get it. Like, and that's- Yeah,
1: like the deal that he has with the widow is if he doesn't find someone to be the lead in the show, that she will be. And it's like, that's like not even a gamble. It's New York City.
0: Oh, also he reneges on- He reneges on that deal. He can't even do that right. Bob sucks. He has to renege on that.
1: Bob's assistant is Kitty Corbett, played by Una Merkel, who has now cemented in my mind the fact that she is the greatest thing about the 30s.
0: Oh, yeah, no. Una Merkel is... One of the things in my notes is Una Merkel, once again, the only non-idiot in this universe. Followed by Irene Bob Sucks, You Should Just Marry Kitty, (laughs) Una Merkel's character.
1: I love that movie.
0: (laughs) Followed by Everyone Should Marry Kitty, followed by They Should Make Kitty President.
1: I actually see nothing wrong with anything in your notes. So Kitty basically is like long suffering, but also hilarious and adorable and smart and is usually the one who's going back and forth between Bob and Burt Keeler, who is the gossip columnist, unless Bob shows up in person to literally punch him off his feet and across the room, which happens multiple times.
0: I have a l- large question about that. I feel like we should kind of just try and do the like, so Bob won't let Irene audition. Like, I'm, ju- I'm going to try and do this in like five sentences, because everything just the moment you stop to breathe and think and d- talk about what's happening in a specific scene, you're like, oh, no, we got to slow down and talk for three hours about how everything that happens in these single before breakfast scene is nuts
1: that's like 15 minutes into the movie (laughs) yeah sorry everyone this will be our first 10 hour podcast
0: so i'm saying we gotta like zoom way way out like we gotta go like okay Okay. to to, like uh, so irene has come to new york to try and get a job on broadway with her high school friend robert gordon gordon meanwhile has a rich widow who is financing his new show and a gossip columnist keeps printing true facts about his relationship with this widow that make him inexplicably angry and he goes and punches him in the face all the time. And that's basically their entire relationship until the gossip columnist, for no reason I can discern, decides to start making up stories about a French lead actress that conveniently provides an in for Irene to, with the help of Kitty finally sort of audition and be given a chance in the show, even though Robert keeps being a dick.
1: By pretending to be the French actress.
0: Right. Uh, the deception is revealed when Keeler decides he doesn't like the plan anymore, and also it turns out there is a woman who is an actress who is just named after the cigar brand that this movie is insane. <laughs> anyway, the point is the deception is revealed, and Irene goes and talks to Keeler, and then goes like, wait a second, your plan sucks, which is true. I'm going to declare what happens at the end of the movie. There is a gigantic fucking musical number that also just makes negative sense, but is amazing. And then, because she's so damn good in that musical number, Bob not only decides to give her the lead role, but marries her on the fucking spot that night. Which, if you've seen the musical number, is the most sensible thing Bob does in the entire movie. (laughs) End of film.
1: (laughs) But it's perhaps the least sensible thing that Irene does because, holy shit, that guy is a patriarchal nightmare. Yes. He does, however, look like a YA novel prince. So, yeah.
0: in in the last musical number Eleanor Powell who plays Irene's whole deal in the movie and out of the movie is tap dancing and I think I have gone on record before as saying I'm not a big tap dance guy you have and I come by it honest I come from a family of not tap dance people and yet she is so good at tap dancing that I was like holy shit, she's amazing. And do you want to know how holy shit she is amazing she actually was in real life? Because I was looking her up on Wikipedia to be like, why have I not seen more movies with her in it? And it's that she is so amazing that she was only in one movie with Fred Astaire because Fred Astaire was intimidated by her.
1: (laughs) I mean, I understand that. She definitely has a similar style to Fred Astaire. It's the almost effortless tap dancing where it's like somehow her legs are made of rubber bands. Yeah. That's his whole thing. Like he was not sharp, he was so liquid and yeah, I I could totally see him being like there could only be one and it has to be me. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it's it's mostly just like if you want like When Fred Astaire is like, she cannot be on screen with me, she makes me look bad. You're really, really good.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing I love Ted. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Ted is great. And Ted has a sister, by the way, (laughs) uh, who's. And they have an act, or they used to have an act with a duck. But then, like, it was a hard winter, so they ate the duck. And his. They live in New York City. So
0: much about Ted is just like, there's also a thing where when Bob hires them on the spot, for God, Bob sucks. When when Irene comes to ask for a job and he instead hires her two friends on the spot because he's the fucking worst person on earth.
1: Her two friends, by the way- who are arguing that he should give her a shot. And instead he's like, no, I'm going to hire you two, even though you don't have the duck anymore.
0: There's also a thing that I hope was meta commentary, but no, no, in my heart that it wasn't, where their musical number in the musical within the musical is the worst musical number of the movie. (laughs) that like Bob made a bad decision by hiring them because what works about them doesn't work on stage.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not great. Their whole bit is that he's super stoned and she's kind of like straight laced. It's not a musical relationship in that way. Like a musical theater relationship. But here's the thing. I don't remember how it is that Irene meets them.
0: He She just hears them singing on the roof of her building that she's staying in.
1: Right, right, right. And
0: goes up to investigate their singing and then does such a good job tap dancing. They all become good friends. And then she has a psychotic break and starts doing an impression of Katherine Hepburn.
1: Oh my God, I totally forgot about that. And it goes on for a long time.
0: It goes on for so long and I'm still not clear why it started. And it gets to my other theory of the plot line of this film, which is when Bob didn't recognize Irene in that very first scene she's in, like 10 minutes into the movie, she just had a full psychotic break and the rest of the movie is is just all in her head.
1: Because or, or she's so completely lost her sense of self that she just adopts whatever comes along. Yeah. Like someone makes a reference to Hepburn and, and now she's Gathered Hepburn. And she does a really good Catherine Hepburn. <laughs>
0: it's one of the reasons, again, I go with the time traveler theory, is this movie lays on the period references so thick that it's like, Oh, you want to make absolutely sure everybody thinks this happened in 1935. There's also a Wallace Beery reference out of fucking nowhere.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is gonna be the most scattered (laughs) podcast ever because I'm just we're just bouncing around this movie. I want
0: to make it clear, though, we make way more sense than the movie right
1: now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The Wallace Beery reference actually isn't a scene I desperately want to talk about, which is once the gossip columnist, whose name I keep forgetting, Bert, once Bert and Snoop, is that his, his assistant?
0: I thought it was Scoop, but apparently it's Snoop.
1: Right. Yeah. So once Snoop and Bert have done this whole thing where they made up this French actress character who's in New York. Oh, right. They have to... Set up, like, a hotel room or something for her with a telephone line. (laughs) So Bob is going to call and want to hire her. A telephone. Like, not in a meeting. So Snoop dresses as a woman, but, like... Doesn't do any makeup or anything. He's just like wearing a dress and a fancy hat and he looks like very sort of Victorian. And that's the point where Jack Benny says to him that he looks about as feminine as Wallace Beery.
0: But the whole establishment of, uh, God, what's the name, the fake French woman's name? Mademoiselle. How did I write everything down but this?
1: Oh, sh- a it's not Estelle, but it's something like that. Yeah.
0: But the thing is, there's this bit from Futurama I always love, where they're underwater, and Zoidberg has gotten a plot where he just has a, like, a hermit crab shell home, and they need to all go back to the surface now, so they just have to abandon that plot, and the way they abandon that plot is Zoidberg comes back and goes, Oh no, my house burned down! <laughs> How did this happen at the bottom of the ocean? And, <laughs> And another character goes, That's a very good question. How did this happen? And Bender walks over and goes, Oh, that's where I left my cigar. And the character goes, That just raises more questions. And that's how I feel about everything with the plot line where Keeler keeps making up more details about this fake French dancer slash actress. is just like, Why are you doing any of this, bro? What? This is so much trouble. Why is he?
1: Oh! Oh, Mademoiselle Arlette. That's what it was.
0: From the moment he suggests Mademoiselle Arlette, I'm like, why are you doing this? And then they're like, well, now I've got to dress up in drag and we've got to rent out a whole hotel room. Why? Just abandon the bit. Why are you doing any of this?
1: (laughs) I have to dress up in drag to answer the phone. Yes. And and then, like, while they're there, Keeler decides, like, oh, okay, well, actually, why don't you be her secretary? And... She should have a man for a secretary. And then it's just like, okay, cool. I'm lounging around in a dress, which like, all right, but what? And so after Kitty calls the hotel room a million times to try to get this fake French actress to come and audition for Bob, she like marches down there to to talk to her and like blows up their spot. And now she knows that Arlette is fake. But that's when she decides to hatch the plan with Irene, where Irene can be Arlette. After Bob puts Irene on a train to go back to Albany, and she gives like one of the train station attendants a letter and says, you know, post this for me when you get to Albany, and gets off the train.
0: I understand mechanically in the plot why you need Mademoiselle Arlette. It's why in-universe Keeler would start this plan. He's like, this is going to be a great prank on Bob Gordon. And it's like, what is the prank, my dude? (laughs) Everyone in the entire town believes you're a liar is the prank. I don't understand what the prank plan was before there was a fake Mademoiselle Arlette.
1: Do you watch New Girl? Yes. You know Winston's first wife that he marries as a prank? (laughs) Yes. It's, it's like it's like one of her pranks.
0: Also, Keeler has a very similar to Winston philosophy of pranking. It is either way too big or what are you doing?
1: And you can write about her without having to like set up this whole hotel.
0: There's so much. We haven't even talked about the snoring guy. We haven't I mean we haven't talked about any musical number.
1: Oh my god! And he's my favorite character!
0: He may be my favorite character in all of cinema because I was like, please never explain this man. And then in the next thing in my notes is actually a 10 minute lecture on snoring is even better than never explaining this man. <laughs> There is just inexplicably a dude in Bob Gordon's office when Keeler first goes over there who is practicing his snoring sounds, who wants to put his snores in Robert Gordon's next show and gives a very long lecture on all the different types of snores there are, until Keeler excuses himself. And then, right. for even less of a reason than the no reason he was in Bob's office, he wanders into Keeler's office in the middle of the movie, and just gives the same lecture, but longer, <laughs> to Bert and Snoop. And then... He is somehow invited to the big party at the end of the film.
1: And there's no explanation for this guy at all. He's not an attending doctor or like, there's no, they don't try to even fit him into it some plot point i
0: assume someone felt that it was funny to have a lot of snoring sound effects and in fact it is but in this unintended rake gag way of like oh my god a full 10 minutes of this movie is this snoring guy (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) this is
1: (laughs) it's it's just a totally (laughs) surreal joke that keeps going like it just keeps going yeah. So, should we talk about the musical numbers? Yeah,
0: I get. Can we? Let's get, let's do it in reverse the way that the Wikipedia page does. Cause I love that they make you wait the entire goddamn movie to hear Broadway rhythm. And, and it's the big climactic number. And then the fucking, <laughs> the syllable count is off on the chorus and it throws the whole rhythm off. <laughs> the song has a terrible rhythm. It does. The entire thing, you're like, my next show, Broadway Rhythm. You gotta hear Broadway Rhythm. Everybody in town's talking about it. Broadway Rhythm. Oh my god, it's finally time. Irene Foster will finally be performing Broadway Rhythm. The rhythm in this song makes no sense.
1: It is not a great song, but the musical number, like the production of it is kind of amazing. There's a bunch of chorus girls... Wearing the weirdest costumes that look like.
0: Wait, where? We're talking about the last one. I'm realizing the flaw in my doing this in reverse plan, which is I'm gonna sound even crazier when I try and talk about where do all those costumes come from?
1: <laughs> I, 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 they were planning, I guess, to have Mademoiselle Arlette perform, so they just had them there?
0: I get, I, get, I guess?
1: They're really weird. It's like sort of flesh colored bodysuits or like not even full bodysuits, like, like leotards. And then they have these on one side, giant black sequined sleeves. So they look they look like something that Salvador Dali made. They're really fucking weird.
0: Yeah, there's like three separate sequences in this movie, because one of the things about all of the musical numbers is this movie doesn't have a really clear handle on how to distinguish between musical numbers that are sort of happening in, in the imagination, musical numbers that are happening in the real world. People are really singing and musical numbers where people are singing on stage It belabors the point eternally in musical numbers where you're like, yeah, I get it. This is in her imagination. She sang In My Imagination 30 times at the start of the song. And then other times it just is like, no, no, no. The bartender just comes out in the middle of this actual party on a rooftop in New York and jumps over all the chorus girls. (laughs) And everybody's just like... Yeah, that happens.
1: And Kitty, who is the secretary, apparently is like a phenomenal ballroom dancer. Right. She's not as good as Ginger Rogers, but she's really charming. She's great. She's not perfect, but whatever. But like, why is Kitty the secretary singing and dancing?
0: (laughs) That was the point where I was like, oh, this just isn't happening in reality then. But then there's no like point where like they then cut back to like what it really is instead of what it feels like or anything. They just cut to Bob and Irene getting married and Keeler being the best man, which is (laughs) Bob has punched Keeler in the face three separate times across a room. Just cannot stop talking about how much he hates Burt Keeler.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I still don't know how Burt Keeler has survived those punches. No. Fully across a room, like from what? the door to the opposite wall.
0: Here's the other thing, is like, the things he's talking about are true, right? Like- Everything he posts in his gossip column is a fact.
1: Yeah, it's not really gossip.
0: Right. And also the most embarrassing thing that he puts in his gossip column is really only embarrassing to the rich widow who Bob stops even pretending to give a shit about about 30 minutes into the film. And so why he feels the need to march across town and assault a man is really unclear to me any of the three times he does it
1: but it's a great musical number i mean so much so that irene ends up getting married because of it though it's weird because she shows up to the dinner in this white dress that is like also rather surreal because it's so many ruffles that it's just ruffles and extends beyond her body a full foot on either side and i'm like what in the hell is she wearing But I guess it was to conceal the black sequined tucks and tails that she was wearing underneath it because she comes out and does this dance at the end of the song. It's really fucking weird.
0: It's super weird.
1: The more I talk about it, the weirder it gets.
0: She also gets Keeler to put in the newspaper that he's about to get pranked, which is I don't think how newspapers work. I don't like I do. not
1: I mean, I guess it could be like the late edition, but it wasn't a column. It was like a personals ad size.
0: Yeah, I mm, but like I let it go because Bob gets totally jumped. That's always nice. <laughs> uh, then. Uh, yes. Should we continue going in reverse or should we abandon this so we sound less crazy?
1: Uh, you know, let's abandon it.
0: All right. So we start off with someone singing the Broadway melody, because I love the idea that the thing that distinguishes the Broadway melody series is like somebody singing that song like it's the fucking down the barrel shot in a James Bond movie. Like, oh, I know what series this is. It's the one where people sing the Broadway melody too much.
1: But it has no bearing whatsoever on the Broadway melody of 1929. Yeah.
0: Then somebody sings, is it, I've got a feeling you're fooling that they, no, You're My Lucky Star
1: is. Yeah, You Are My Lucky Star is the Broadway melody of this movie because they sing it like 12 times. And I think
0: it's the one they sing second, right after the Broadway melody in the weird, unnecessary radio show framing device that kind of introduces us to Keeler but makes no sense. Yes. And then Keeler goes back to his office after doing a gossip column that's just saying who's going to have a baby. And we have another one of those weird scenes where apparently in the 1930s, everybody felt responsible journalism was puff pieces about fucking nothing. (laughs) Whenever an editor is like, you should report on like actual news people don't want you to know. People are super indignant about like what a shitty job that is and how terrible reporters are (laughs) for doing that. And... (laughs) the, The... but then Keeler is instantly Keeler spends the entire office fight fighting with his boss about just like, everybody loves babies. I should just start reporting on babies all the time. And it edi- and his editors like, no. And then he goes to his office and he's immediately all in on never reporting about <laughs> babies again.
1: Uh, yes.
0: And then Snoop, who is, again, it is wild to me that Bert Keeler makes enough money as a gossip columnist to hire an assistant. But Snoop is explicitly his assistant that he has hired as a reporter. And Snoop looks out the window and just goes, oh, hey, across the street, a big fancy party on a rooftop, and just takes out binocular glasses that he puts over glasses and starts staring at it. And we cut over to this fancy party with Bob Gordon and whatever the name of the rich widow is. Lillian? Lillian. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a rich widow name. And then they go into I've Got a Feelin' You're Foolin', which does so many stupid set tricks. And Susan, God, I love stupid set tricks. (laughs) They they make me so happy. And this movie, just all the musical numbers are... Is stupid set tricks. And then just like Eleanor Powell doing incredibly elaborate tap numbers. That's everything. That's every number.
1: Yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah. I've got a feeling you're fooling too. I think it's supposed to set up for us that like Lillian has a big thing for Bob and Bob is just really like using her for her money. But there's no uh, like they don't really develop that relationship at all. And like, I'm fine with it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it's weird because it does seem to set up kind of a different relationship dynamic than the one you eventually get. Mm -hmm. Either he is protesting too much when he's like, no, 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 no. We shouldn't like mix business and like our private relationship and like actually did secretly want that. And then it's a long con where he's got a manager for the whole movie, which he just gives up on doing like a third of the way through the film. Or he genuinely had feelings for her. And then just decides, like, uh, actually, screw you, like immediately after this scene for no real reason.
1: It's weird. And then we have th- what I think actually is the strangest musical number in this movie, which is Sing Before Breakfast.
0: Oh, God, it's so weird.
1: Which is the one where Irene discovers Ted and Sally on the roof singing. And Sally says something about how you can't sing before breakfast, which then has Ted launch into a whole song that everyone then joins in on about how you absolutely should sing before breakfast.
0: It's crazier than that, because he was singing that before. They just sit down and have a whole breakfast conversation. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the sister, who was singing the song (laughs) with him, goes, oh, no, now you can never sing before breakfast. And then they just do, do like, uh, do the whole song again. And then then Irene does a big, very impressive tap routine.
1: Yes, on the roof where, like, there's all this laundry hanging on lines and they eat breakfast at a table on the roof
0: and then the exit to that scene is that they just curl up all four sides of the tablecloth with all of their silverware with food still on it and like a coffee pot that presumably still has coffee in it inside (laughs) put it over their shoulder and just like swing it around as they dance downstairs
1: yeah it's fucking weird. And
0: again, I just cannot stress how much Ted, Buddy Epson's character, is just so high. Just, it's, I... Oh, he's so uh, stoned! Ext- ext- yeah.
1: So then, all I do is dream of you, I uh, don't-
0: uh, yeah, next.
1: Is is that the, the imagination song?
0: I think it's the imagination song, which is our big special effects showcase.
1: I gotta say, and I'm gonna level a criticism at this movie other than, oh my god, it's so fucking wild. Which isn't necessarily a criticism, it's just a fact. The layering of so many different film exposures got kind of muddy there for me.
0: Yeah, it also is just like so... That's what I mean by it's like so overly belabored because like her first like imagination projection of herself that indicates that she has just full on lost her mind.
1: Yeah, so she's sitting in the audience of the theater after Bob has left and been like, yeah, no, you don't want to be an actor. It sucks because I work on Broadway and it's really bad. Anyway, I have to go now and put on white tie and tails for something I have to go to. It's the worst though. Did I mention that? And she, like, imagines herself on the stage singing. And then that turns into, like, basically being in Swad Lake. But they layer so many exposures. So it's like, you know, she's right. imagining it. And, and the the,
0: fir- the first thing that kind of, like, is wild to me about that scene is that the first imagination projection she does is just her walking up onto the stage and starting to sing. And it's like, you could just do that. No one else is in this theater. You don't You don't need to use the power of imagination to walk across the room in the outfit you're wearing and sing.
1: Yeah, it's it's really bizarre.
0: <laughs> then it gets more elaborate as the number goes on, but at first it's like why why?
1: Just go stand on stage. Nobody's here. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have Ted and Sally's number.
0: That's a weirdly <laughs> romantic song to make a brother-sister act sing.
1: It is. And I miss the duck.
0: Yeah, I miss the duck too. <laughs> Friggin' Matthew Lillard ass motherfucker.
1: <laughs> 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 now I'm imagining him as <laughs> serial killer and Hackers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> He'd be great.
1: So yeah, they have this number where it's like kind of country-ish.
0: Yeah, it's... it's fucking, like, off-brand, sorry, with the fringe on top.
1: Yeah, it is totally that. And
0: they do it for, like, a, a minute 30. And then Bob's like, it's great. It's okay at best. But Bob is wrong about everything, so that makes sense.
1: That That's true. That's true. And then... Old folks at home is really, they just play it a little bit. And fake Madame Arlette, who is now blonde instead of brunette, and is wearing, like, the shortest short hot pants and sheer stockings and looks adorable but she also looks like she's in cabaret which contributes to your time traveler theory
0: that's also like this is such a bog standard movie logic thing but the fact that bob can't recognize her is such a like fuck you bob <laughs> like stares her straight in the face two feet away
1: i have a- theory that Bob actually has facial blindness
0: I yeah I have a theory because
1: he doesn't recognize his high school sweetheart when he looks at her directly in his office and then she shows up in a wig which like It's a good wig, but her face doesn't look any different. I, I, Yeah. It's not like she has on glasses or something. She looks like Irene with blonde curly hair.
0: I like this because it explains the weird subplot where Bob goes to Hollywood to find a leading woman and is like, you can't find any actresses in that town. And it's like, (laughs) it's like that he was fucking standing right next to Catherine Hepburn and was like, nothing, nobody. (laughs) God damn it. <laughs> Kitty, book me a flight back home. Um, like-
1: <laughs> it, yeah, I actually, I think that Bob just has facial blindness, which is not an excuse for him being the worst. No. Plenty of people who have facial blindness are totally great people. He just also happens to be the worst. Anyways, then she does her like incredibly, just bonkersly good tap dance routine.
0: The little bit where she faces away and is like, I'm so sick of smiling for this fucking tap routine is the most adorable thing I've ever seen in my life.
1: (gasps) Ah, And then she turns around and is like, (laughs) cheese! immediately yeah it was really cute uh and then she goes off stage and she and kitty jump up and down like oh yay it was great and that's the point i assume in your notes where you wrote that irene should just marry kitty i
0: I think it's immediately after that that lillian comes storming in and reads the hilarious poem from keeler and that was where i wrote keeler's poem owns bob sucks everybody marry kitty and then make her president <laughs> that that <laughs>
1: Yeah, and then we have the last musical number, which we already talked about. But I do want to mention something about this, because there is a part of that musical number right at the end where Irene does like a PK turn from the very, from like all the way upstage to all the way downstage and right to the camera. Right. And I was watching that, and I have never seen a person spot as well as she does. Like her head, she's like a robot. It was, it was nuts
0: it's legitimately nuts like it's it's it is so good
1: that like (laughs) Like, i've never noticed anyone spotting so well that it was noticeable like you notice when somebody doesn't spot well because they get dizzy and like they go off of line but she's in a like absolutely perfect precise knife line it's it's unreal i thought like is she doing this or is this like does she have a body double but if you know, Fred Astaire was afraid of her.
0: Time travelers, it's CGI. <laughs> I, know. I, I remember thinking the same thing because there's other like impressive technical dancing moments in this film where I definitely was like, Oh, they had to do that several times. Like when the bartender jumps over all the chorus girls, he accidentally kicked one of them in the head like five or six times in a row. <laughs> but like, if you told me that. If you told me Eleanor Powell did that in one take, I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. I believe it for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Got it first try. Because it's insane.
1: So what we're saying is this movie will blow your mind. And you might feel a little bit like you did drugs while you're watching it.
0: Yeah, I I really do feel like you sent me a text earlier that was like, I don't know if I got Stockholm Syndrome or this is the greatest film of all time. <laughs> and I wrote back kind of both, actually, um, because like I my real theory, I mean, my real theory is time travel, but, but like my theory about why this movie works so well is is that, like, you just have to get on its wavelength because otherwise you lose your mind. And the moment you're on its wavelength, it's just Eleanor Powell being goddamn amazing and Una Merkel being, like, great. When you just abandon yourself to the dream logic of this film.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's why there are so many surreal costumes, is it's actually, it's just a dream. Yeah. I'm okay with that. I also was really excited that... There was finally a leading lady who was like the inexperienced ingenue who comes to New York to make it, opposite Una Merkel, who deserved to be there because like Ruby Keeler in Forty Second Street, yeah, Ellen Rappel would like wipe the floor with her, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> there's just no competition, and Una Merkel is amazing in this movie. Don't get me wrong. But she.
0: There genuinely was a thing in the last number where it th- where it was like, oh, they're just gonna let Una Merkel dance. They're letting every. They're just letting anybody in now.
1: Right, and in Forty Second Street, I would not have <laughs> felt that way. <laughs>
0: no, it's it's definitely like in Forty Second Street. You're like, oh, thank God, they're letting Una Merkel do something again. <laughs> that's it. <that's...
1: laughs> and I. I have I actually loved the chemistry between her and Ellen Rappel. Like, they had some really good, like, girl power, getting one over on your boss, getting one over on a man thing going on. That felt really nice.
0: Yeah, they had this really well-developed relationship, too. Really more than any other character relationship in the film, them knowing each other and getting to know each other and becoming closer and doing things for each other feels natural. (laughs) Or at least within the realm of human behavior. (laughs) Yes. Because it's kind of given more time than any other relationship in the movie. Just sort of from the fact that kitty has to run interference for bob so much irene ends up spending a lot of time with her
1: and their relationship does not necessarily start out instantaneously that they like one another it's really that kitty is like oh you don't have an appointment i'm a secretary and long suffering and i have to work so hard can you i can't do anything for you can you please just make an appointment and by, like, the end of the movie, she's helping her plot to get one over on her boss with this woman, because they actually have, like, a really nice blossoming of a friendship.
0: Sorry, I'm just- I was just remembering Una Merkel's great delivery of that hack-ass line when they're starting to do the Mademoiselle Arlette bit, where she goes, You do realize we'll get the chair for this, and even worse, I could get fired. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is Uh, again in context makes no sense but like
1: (laughs) and out of context also makes no sense
0: but is great because una merkel delivers it
1: she really is just dynamite and i had the thought of like how come she never gets to be like the leading lady anjadu and it's because she's so damn funny yeah which fine (laughs)
0: they uh Apparently, by the way, I was like looking at her Wikipedia page and like, boy, did the studios get their money's worth having her on contract. She was doing like 13 films a year through the 30s. Wow. Go to the Universal Wikipedia page real quick and look at how long it takes you to scroll to 1940 from 1930.
1: Dear God. Yeah. Well, how could we didn't watch more of these?
0: (laughs) I feel like it's because if I was a shitty... Hollywood producer in the 30s and I had Una Merkel on contract, every single time somebody told me a production was in trouble, I'd go like, throw Una Merkel in there, see if that fixes it. (laughs) And like...
1: (laughs) And it probably would have, yeah.
0: (laughs) The answer is like, usually yes, but not enough to win an Oscar.
1: So so should we rate this movie?
0: Uh, yeah. I kind of... Am I forgetting something racist or can we give this movie a 10? (laughs)
1: Can we okay I I feel like in the realm of all movies that we have watched I wouldn't give it a 10 in the realm of all movies that we have and will watch I don't know that I would give it a 10 Within the context of nineteen thirty five, however.
0: It, within the context of nineteen thirty five honestly within the context of films we have watched, I would give it a ten. And I am honestly okay sitting here and arguing with a straight face when we get to the godfather that this movie deserves to be up there with the godfather. I am I will I mean, do an, that for the podcast.
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna give it an eight because the 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 plot is so flimsy. The plot uh, yeah, is so yeah. flimsy. You could give it a ten, though.
0: It's. I mean, here's the thing: is that I, I I have down in my notes that in my head when we started this project, when I was imagining a bad movie. This was what I imagined in a weird way because it's such a basically entertaining mess.
1: No, that's that's definitely true for me too. I did not ima- I didn't imagine we would watch so many actually bad movies, like not entertaining, not well made, bullshit movies.
0: <laughs> and like I think the thing that makes me want to give it so many points is like I'm joking about the time travel thing, but I'm also not joking about the time travel thing, because there is this weird thing with this movie where it will just casually do something where you're like, oh, I haven't seen a movie do that before. Like the opening scene, this weird scene in like where they're just recording a radio show to introduce you to Burt Keeler has all these nice little camera moves There's this great tracking shot through the newsroom every time Bob comes in to punch Keeler in the face. And it's like, they're so unshowy that it's like the movie doesn't even know they're impressive. And yet, I don't think we've seen a movie pull either of those things off before. And so it's like... They accidentally knew how to make a movie from 1960 and were like, oh, surely they knew how to do a giant tracking shot across a room with like set moments where people throw paper up in the air to make it look like the room is busier than it is. Like th- they had that down by 1935. Sure, sure. Go, go. We've got to stop the Daleks or whatever. <laughs> like I like I. <laughs> that, like, this movie has such weird moments of being ahead of its time in such a bizarre way that the fact that it does fall apart and does make no sense is like they were trying to make a worse movie so you didn't notice what was going on.
1: Yeah, I... I, I... I appreciate this argument. I still am going to give it an eight. I,
0: that's probably fair. I, I, here's the, I want to give it a nine because I want to give it the best grade we've given anything. But you're right, I don't want to defend a ten. I don't want to defend a ten like six years from now.
1: I don't even know that I want to defend a ten like in, I mean, six years in like movie time or six years in project time.
0: I mean, I will happily go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> here's the
0: thing. I feel like I've seen the biggies. Like, the ones where people, if we don't give it a 10, are gonna freak out. And spoiler alert, we're not giving a fucking 10 to Gone with the Wind. Because that movie's a racist piece of shit. But, I will at least have fun going like, Okay, now people love Citizen Kane. But, can Orson Welles spot the way-
1: <laughs> I mean, that that's a, that is a totally valid argument. I've never seen Orson Welles tap dance like Eleanor Powell, so...
0: But seriously, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a nine. I'm going to give it a this is the best we've seen so far grade. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm not gonna defend a ten for the for the next seventy years of film.
1: <laughs> should you watch this movie? Yes. Yeah, right now, <laughs> it is
0: available on Amazon. Go grab it. It's really entertaining.
1: Yeah. Go right now and do it. And then after you do that, you should subscribe to the Screen Test of Time on iTunes. <laughs> Or your other podcasting apps and give us a rating, preferably a five. Yeah. And you can leave us a review. It could be, you know, really enthusiastic, like this episode of our podcast.
0: (laughs) If you want to register yourself as Eleanor Powell and thank us for how much we've complimented you in this episode. Feel free to do that.
1: Yeah, we would be we would be fine with that.
0: Also, if you are Eleanor Powell or Una Merkel and have been trusted with the power of time travel. Get at us. One, get at us. Two, they made a good call. I see why they trusted you with that.
1: <laughs> That's actually how she was able to make that many movies. Yeah. It's like the time <laughs> turner in Harry Potter.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Next week, we have a movie I was not expecting to go into being like, well, this is going to be a disappointment, (laughs) which is Top Hat with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And maybe, maybe it'll fucking be, maybe it's good I'm leaving room at the top.
1: It's got some Irving Berlin jams in it. Cheek to cheek, specifically. Yeah. But yeah, uh, until, until then, go watch Broadway Melody of 1936.
0: Yeah, this, I mean, here's the thing. I'm not sure this, I'm not sure what this was, but I really liked it. <laughs> I'm not entirely certain th- that this was a movie, but it was really, it was worth my time.
1: It was really fun. Goodbye, everybody.
0: Bye.
1: And sing before breakfast. Never cry
0: a thing before you eat that shredded wheat. Sing, just sing and sing and sing. And string, and string.